0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: This morning, we are continuing in our sermon series titled Evolving Christianity by reflecting on our commitment to safely nurture kids and youth in the ways of divine love. We recently launched a new podcast titled Story and Table. And I hope you'll give it a listen. And if you appreciate the content, it's our hope that you might share it with some of your friends and loved ones. Story and table, it exists to make important connections between the religious stories that we tell and the tables that these religious stories set in our lives. That's to say, our stories give shape to the systems within which we live our lives. That is to say, our stories influence very deeply the ways in which we see and understand this world. And a primary story that gives shape to how many Western Christians think about children is found in Genesis chapter 3. In this chapter, Adam and Eve eat from a tree called the knowledge of good and evil and are thereby cursed. This curse has been given the Christian name, original sin. Just for a moment, can you raise your hands if you have heard this, original sin? Okay, yes. Original sin states that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, they, and every single human being to come after them, became inherently depraved. To be depraved is to be morally corrupt and intrinsically wicked. Of course, this human state can be altered by trust in Jesus, shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, but, but let's just sit with this part of the story for a moment. Imagine that you are a child growing up in a church in which this story is told again and again and again. Without trust in Jesus, you are sinful. Without trust in Jesus, you, your heart is wicked. Without trust in Jesus, your desires are ungodly. And subtly over time, this story sinks deeper and deeper into your bones. You aren't good. In fact, at the deepest part of yourself, you are bad, corrupt, wicked. Do you see how this story sets an unhealthy table in the lives of people? It's a hopeless table. It's a table full of shame and guilt. And for parents who have grown up within this particular story, their children's growth and development becomes incredibly problematic. For example, the interpretive lens of original sin causes parents to worry deeply, so deeply, that when their child tells a lie, or when their child breaks a rule, or when their child goes beyond a boundary, this is very difficult for parents because these moments of pushing the limits then become proof of a child's depravity causing great concern. Parents are left to wonder, what are we to do? We must do something. We can't just let our child deepen into their inherited sinfulness. And this very real concern can become a pedagogical crisis. We must take action, which very often, due to our own fear and anxiety as parents, takes on the form of discipline and punishment. And going a step further, this particular story has pedagogical consequences. For if a child is truly depraved, then there is nothing good inside of them. And so it becomes the work of adults to get the bad out and to get the good in. Now, other than the notion of eternal torment in a place called hell, I don't think that there's a more harmful Christian story than the story of original sin. For even if a child eventually prays a prayer and gets quote-unquote saved, they've lived in the waters of original sin for their entire lives, causing them great suspicion about their own goodness. And it's the same for parents. Having lived in the waters of original sin for a large portion of their lives, even after a child prays a prayer and gets quote-unquote saved, there's deeply embedded concern about their own child's goodness. Now, if you've been at Pearl for a while, you've heard us debunk the myth of original sin again and again and again. You can find sermons about this on our website. We have an article on our site under resources titled Wisdom Grasping. But put simply, this myth of original sin comes from Augustine's mistranslation of a Latin text on Romans chapter 5, verse 12. That's where the whole thing comes from. A mistranslation of one verse in one book in the Bible, in the fourth century. However, the majority of progressive and conservative scholars agree that the Greek text indicates that we all sin in the way of Adam, rather than indicating that we all sinned in Adam. And this distinction is significant In Augustine's incorrect thinking, reading, interpretation, we are all, because of original sin, depraved at conception, sullied, nothing good in us. But in the latter correct reading, Adam is more of a typology for humankind. We all, like Adam, sin. And how do we all, like Adam, sin? Well, long before the story of original sin, there were other interpretations for Genesis chapter 3. And one that I find most helpful can be called wisdom grasping. For you see, God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? Well, because it's impossible for humans to grow up into perfect knowledge in a moment. It just can't be done. About this, listen to these ancient words by second century apologist Theophilus of Antioch. He's writing about the fruit that Adam and Eve ate from that tree. It reads, For there was nothing else in the fruit than only knowledge. But knowledge is good when one uses it discreetly. But Adam, being yet an infant in age, was on this account yet unable to receive knowledge worthily. For now also when a child is born, it is not at once able to eat bread, but is nourished first with milk, and then with the increment of years it advances to solid food. Besides, it is unseemly that children in infancy be wise beyond their years, for as in stature one increases in an orderly progress, so also in wisdom. is that a beautiful interpretation for Genesis chapter 3? You see, it takes humans whole lifetimes to grow up into wisdom. Similarly, it takes humankind many millennia to grow up into wisdom. And in our Genesis story, God seems to understand this better than anyone else. I think this is underrepresented when we talk about the Genesis story. For in Genesis, it isn't God who impatiently desires Adam and Eve to become perfect as fast as possible. It was God who graciously and lovingly commanded, do not eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. For you see, wholeness and goodness take time to grow up into. And how? How do we humans grow up into all goodness and wisdom? Well, there's only one way, isn't there? To live, to make mistakes, to learn lessons, to grow slowly day by day and season by season and year by year for truly there is no other path to human development. It's the only way for us to grow up. Now, I'd like to pause here for a moment to consider some of the implications of this more ancient interpretation of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. I'm just going to make some statements here. There is no such thing as original sin. Our kids are not inherently depraved. Like Adam and Eve, adults and children feel the human compulsion to be something better, something more than what we are. I think we all feel that at times. And like our creator, we adults are invited into patience as children wonderfully and messily and confusingly become. There's no need to worry. There's no need to be anxious. It's not our job to get the bad out because children aren't bad. And it's not our job to get the good in because goodness already exists within them. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that it's not important to walk beside children, to instruct children, to help children. What I'm trying to get at here is the angst and immense responsibility that we adults sometimes feel about ensuring that our children become. Because, believe it or not, they are in every moment already becoming. And like Adam and Eve, they are probably trying to become too much too quickly. That's probably what's happening. Because growing takes time, and time, developmentally speaking, is the kindred friend of growth. Do you want to see our kids grow? Okay, give them time. They will grow. We can't actually even stop them, (laughs) they are going to grow. In this morning's New Testament reading in which little children were being brought to Jesus, the disciples were stern and tried to make them go away. Children are a bother. Children get in the way. Children aren't as important as adults. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, let the little children come to me and do not stop them. For it is to such as these the kingdom of heaven belongs. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. What an extraordinary statement, like if we actually pause to bask within it. Somehow, Christianity has gotten many of us to think that we have to get kids over time into heaven by thinking the right things and by doing the right things. But according to Jesus, we actually have it backwards. Jesus said, for it is to such as these children that the kingdom of heaven belongs, Well, what does this mean? Well, children are wonderfully free, aren't they? They're curious and open to learning new things. Children are often excited about their own growth. Children rarely think about who is providing for them, which is why parents often say, hey, money doesn't grow on trees. But I guess it kind of does if you're a child and live in heaven. Children are welcoming and accepting. Children are energetic And insatiable. We could go on and on about the glories of children. Of course, it's not like this forever. Developmental theorists and psychologists tell us that there are these moments during which children begin to lose their innocence. Maybe we could say there's this moment when children begin to lose heaven. It usually happens when important attachments, usually to adult figures, begin to feel tenuous or broken. It usually happens when children begin to realize that they have to behave in a certain way in order to secure safety and love. It usually happens when children begin to experience pain, harm, and trauma. And it's during these critical moments that children begin to cover or to put on armor in order to protect their deepest fears. Am I loved? Am I safe? Can I belong As I am. And it's through this lens that I'd like to consider reshaping some of the ways in which we interpret our children's behavior. Like, what if, I'll throw out a few what ifs, what if tantrums aren't depravity, but an attempt to be understood when language is still developing? What if lies aren't wicked, but a deeply embedded fear of disappointing adult figures? What if tears aren't weakness or a lack of self-control, but an invitation to increasing intimacy? What if breaking rules isn't naughty, but testing the strength of connection to adult loved ones? What if stepping outside of boundaries isn't rebellious, but the difficult and confusing work of individuation? Well, if this were the case, and I think it may be, then these childlike moments that can often feel like hell to adults aren't actually anywhere close to hell. For instead, these are a child's attempt to remain in heaven. Am I loved? Am I safe? Can I, as I am, belong? And at Pearl, we want to say again and again and again, yes, you are loved. Yes, you are safe. Yes, you can belong exactly as you are. I'd like to read to you Pearl's statement on pedagogy, which is our thoughts about how kids grow up. Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. This statement actually names our pedagogy for adults. For example, the loving story that we express and the inclusive table that we extend animate our lives by love. However, when it comes to kids, our pedagogy is necessarily reversed. We begin with experiences of love, move on to encounters of inclusion. So that by the time our children begin to sincerely engage the scriptures, their experiences of love and encounters with inclusion function as a lens through which they begin to interpret and make meaning of our sacred text. With this context in mind, our toddlers and preschoolers, so two- to three-year-olds, developmentally speaking, children two- to three-years-old are most deeply shaped by their experiences. Our pedagogy for this age group, therefore, emphasizes ongoing experiences of divine love. In every story, told, song, sung, game, played in volunteer interaction, we intend for our toddlers and preschoolers to intentionally experience love. And then our elementary kids, 4 to 11-year-olds. Developmentally speaking, children 4 to 11 are most deeply shaped by their encounters. As our children age out of the toddler preschool class, our pedagogy for this age group emphasizes ongoing encounters of common table. In every story, told, song, sung, game, played, and volunteer interaction, we intend for our elementary children to encounter their own belonging, as well as the belonging of the other, whoever that happens to be. And then our youth, 12 to 18-year-olds. Developmentally speaking, children 12 to 18 years old begin to transition from valuing concrete experiences and encounters to valuing the glory of abstract ideas. Having experienced love and having encountered inclusion over the course of their lives at Pearl, our pedagogy for this age group begins to sincerely engage our sacred story. This story, however, is not just read and then discussed, rather it's interpreted through our youth's deep knowing of love and experience of inclusion, which function as a lens to discern the heart and pleasure of God for today. And this brings me to storytelling. The stories that children hear are powerful. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, stories set the tables around which we live our lives. About this, in Plato's Republic, we read these wise words. Anything received into the mind at that age, the age of a child, is likely to become indelible and unalterable. And therefore, it is important that the tales which the young first hear should be models of virtuous thought. With this in mind, we take serious the stories that we tell our children at Pearl. We want the indelible and unalterable tales that they hear at Pearl to be models of virtuous thought that don't need to one day be deconstructed because of their violence or incoherence. Instead, it's our sincere hope that the tales told here can set a secure foundation of safety and of belonging and of love upon which our children live out the rest of their lives. And so we have a theological statement of safety. I think every church should. It reads, We believe that theology must be relevant and safe for children according to their developmental stages. The stories that we tell and the lessons that we provide emphasize God's love and inclusion for every part of every person. We believe that children, no matter their age or belief, belong to God and are held by God. We are intentional to avoid any form of violence in our stories and lessons, including violence found within the Bible. With all of this in mind, It's our sincere desire that the tales told here are tales of divine safety, tales of divine belonging, and tales of divine love, which set a loving table around which our children are freed and inspired to flourish. Western Christianity has caused many of us to think that it's our job to teach the kids. But if there's no such thing as original sin, and if children exist in a kingdom called heaven, and if childlike moments that feel like hell are actually invitations to continue existing in heaven, then perhaps we Christians can begin to ponder a reality in which our kids are here to teach us. And this makes me think of a glorious poem by the Persian poet Rumi. It's titled The Guest House. It reads, This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight the dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Will you pray with me? Divine love, thank you for our children, these guests, who have so very much to teach us about your kingdom. Help us to welcome them all, each child, each moment, even the most difficult moments, open to the lessons of heaven sent by you from beyond. For these children among us, we give great thanks.
0: We hope that this sermon inspired you